Hi, hello, how are you? My name is Elizabeth Dale and I am a Cornish writer, blogger and sometimes podcaster who is slightly obsessed with local history. So I hope I'm finding you really well today. Um, It's been a little while since I recorded anything and I'm very sorry for that. Um, Sometimes life just gets away with you, doesn't it? And um, I just didn't manage to to find the time to do anything uh, last month for you. But hopefully that means that you're going to enjoy today's podcast even more. And talking of which, uh, the story today was actually suggested to me by a listener to the podcast. So kind of like Mother Ivy that we spoke about in the last episode. Um, This was a story that I had heard of. It appears in a really wonderful book called uh, Cornish Characters and Strange Events that was published um, about the turn of the last century in about 1905, something like that, I think. Anyway, uh, it's in that book um, and it's told almost a little bit like a bit of a parable Um, and so I didn't really look into it too deeply um, until this listener got in touch and I thought you know what actually this story deserves a little bit more uh, digging into a bit more of an investigation so I went to it to see what I could find out. Now the bare bones of the story is this in the early 18th century a man called Henry Rogers took possession of a house called Skewis, which is a tiny hamlet not much more than a farm these days and it's close to Nancy Gollan on the outskirts of Camborne. Officials were called to remove him from the property but Henry refused and shots were fired. He and his family remained barricaded in the house for several months The army was called in, a cannon was brought from Pendennis Castle, just general chaos ensued and eventually Henry was arrested and charged with the murder of three men. So how on earth did this bizarre situation occur? That's what we're going to be talking about today, the Siege of Skewis. Skewis is in the parish of Crowen, and from the information that we have, the house and the surrounding land had been in the Rogers family for generations. The family were yeomen, which is basically a sort of upper class farmer, a farmer who owned their own land, so they were reasonably well off. Henry Rogers was one of three brothers, Henry, William and John, and there was one sister called Jane. Now, I haven't been able to establish their exact dates of birth, but it appears that they were all born towards the end of the 17th century. William was the eldest son, so he inherited the farm when their father died, while Henry moved to Helston and became a pewterer, which is basically a tinsmith, someone who makes objects out of tin, usually domestic items such as plates and goblets. But, you know, this is skilled work. Henry married a woman called Catherine Williams, I believe in April 1697, and together the couple had three children, Grace, John and Henry. 
On the 8th of June 1723, William Rogers, that's the eldest brother, he married Anne Millet, the daughter of John Millet, who I think was from St Earth. They had no children, um, possibly because the marriage came quite late in life for both of them. Then, just six years later, in March 1729, William Rogers dies. Now, his will is actually held at Crescent Curnow, our amazing record office in Redruth, and is available to view on microfiche, which is what I did. And, well, this will is like no other that I have ever seen. It actually contains 21 separate documents. The first couple of pages are exactly what you would expect. There's William's will and an inventory of his possessions. But the following pages, they really lay out how we ended up with the unlikely event of a siege at a house deep in the Cornish countryside. So on the surface, William's will is seemingly pretty unsurprising. He writes, quote, I give and bequeath my soul unto the hands of the Almighty. I give and bequeath my body to the earth from whom it was taken. He then moves on to individual bequests um, to his brother Henry, five pounds to be paid within a month of his death, and the same for his brother John and his sister Jane, who we now learn has married a man called Richard Morris. There are some other bequests um, to members of his wife Anne's family, um, including William Davies, who is his mother-in-law's brother, so Anne's uncle. And William Rogers also gives two pounds and ten shillings for the poor of Crowan Parish. And then he, he makes his quote, well-beloved wife Anne Rogers, my whole and sole heiress of all my lands, tenements, goods, chattels, whatsoever to sell and dispose of as she shall think, end quote. So we, we note at this point that um, the will is witnessed by three members of the Davies family, so relations of Anne, his wife. There are no witnesses from the Rogers family, which might actually be significant. It seems that it's this will that's really at the root of the problem, the cause of everything that was to follow. Henry was the next eldest brother and he had in expected to inherit the farm. Skewis, as I said, had been in the Rogers family for generations and it seems that it had been the tradition that it would be passed down through the male line. But you see, William was dying um, with no children and yet he was passing the family farm onto Anne, his wife, which meant that when she died, it would pass out of the Rogers family. So the further 19 pages in William Rogers's will are taken up with legal documents and eyewitness statements because Henry Rogers claimed that this will was not his brother's original will. He claimed that at best there was another one that had been overlooked, or at worst Anne or her family had forged the one that had actually been read out. Now before we get into the drama, I thought it might be interesting to take a little look at William Rogers' inventory, and that's the list of the possessions that he owned when he died. 
For those of you that haven't really done any family history research, an inventory can be an incredibly useful document when you're just trying to get a picture of someone from the past. They can be really thorough, literally listing everything of value in a person's home and business, which just helps to create a picture of them and their lives, how they lived, you know, what kind of things they had surrounding them um, and how well off that they were, that kind of thing. So William's William Rogers inventory was taken on the 1st of July 1729 and it reads quote all the singular goods and chattels of William Rogers late of the parish of Crowan in the county of Cornwall gent deceased taken and appraised by John Davy of the parish of Camborne yeoman William Davies of St. Hilary and Martin Harry of the parish of Elugan, Gent, this day, 1st of July, 1729, end quote. Notice that there is William Davies again. So I, I won't read it all, but um, some of the items on the list include his wearing apparel, 12 ash chairs, bellows and two fire pans, four dozen plates, 17 pewter dishes, a clock, one iron candlestick, seven large silver spoons, several feather beds, bolsters, rugs and pillows. And it goes through the contents sort of room by room. So we actually know a little bit about the house from the inventory as well. There was a hall, a parlour, four chambers, a dairy, kitchen, larder, barn and Maui. The animals are listed too. There were 11 geese, 11 turkeys, 5 poultry, 8 ducks, 1 horse, 4 cows, 7 calves, 1 bull, 3 steers, 2 heifers and a quantity of barley, wheat and reeds, presumably for thatch. Then the tenements are listed and the whole lot is valued at £1,155, 19 shillings and sixpence, which in today's money works out to be about £150,000. But back then, this was a huge amount of, of money. And beyond that, it was a living and it was a family inheritance. So for Henry Rogers, it was priceless. Now, accounts of the siege seem to try and paint Henry as a bit wild, as, as unreasonable, but it's clear from the documents in the care of Crescent Kernow that he tried to do things the right way. He lodged a legal complaint on the 4th of August 1729, saying that he believed that there was another will amongst William's belongings, which he had seen and which was different from the one that had been read and this claim was then investigated. Anne, that's William's wife, um, she was interviewed and asked whether she had ever seen another will. She answered that, quote, that will was the last will, the original will of the deceased. No other will had come into her hand, possession or knowledge, end quote. She must have been asked why it had been her family, the Davies, who had witnessed the will because she is quoted as saying that William Davies, that's her mother's brother, um, and the other two witnesses, which were her cousins, that they were, quote, men of good reputation and credit and that neither of them can have any benefit or advantage by the will in question, end quote. 
William Davies and uncle also gave evidence. That's the man who witnessed the will and also made the inventory. And he claimed that William Rogers had come to St. Hilary to see him and his family. And he had stayed overnight. And during that visit, he had signed the will for him. And he believed that the document that had been submitted was the original. Then came Anne's father, John Millet, who gave evidence that he had helped Anne to sort through her husband's papers after his death, that they had found the document, you know, the will that had been read, and that there had been no others, and that he, he had said also, quote, he never planned to give his goods to his relations, end quote. So it seems that the law basically decided that this was the original will, that it was valid, and that Henry's claims were rejected. Everything went quiet, actually, for quite a while. It was four or five years, in actual fact. But we can imagine that Henry was stewing about this injustice as he saw it, perhaps trying other legal op uh, um, methods to claim what he saw as his, but without success. And then just everything came to a head in 1734. On the 17th of June, 1734, Henry Rogers waited for Anne, his sister-in-law, to leave the farm at Skewis. And then he walked in, turned out her servants, moved in his own family and his own servants, and basically took possession of the house. They barricaded themselves in and Anne was locked out. She immediately went to the authorities, but Rogers refused to leave, so the county sheriff was instructed to remove him by force. The undersheriff, a man called Stephen Tilly, tried first on the 18th of June. Um, he arrived at Skewis to serve a writ, telling Rogers to vacate the building. But Henry is said to have appeared at an upper window with a gun, sworn at him and dared him to approach. Tilly had tried to reason with him, but it hadn't worked. And by this time, word had got around and a crowd of two or three hundred people was watching all of this unfold. And it seems like the general opinion of the majority of the onlookers, they were actually on Henry's side. They too seemed to have believed that he had been diddled out of his inheritance. Now, poor Tilly, the undersheriff, he, he apparently tried again, telling Henry that he must surrender and stepping closer to the house, at which point Rogers actually fired at him and the undersheriff was unharmed, but apparently stated that the shot had, quote, burned his wig and singed his face, end quote. Tilly retreated and sent for reinforcements and according to legend this included soldiers and a cannon from Pendennis Castle as well as a bailiff called William Carpenter. They all arrived the next day the 19th of June at about 8am and it seems they tried again to reason with Henry Rogers but he was having none of it and told them to leave. During the night, Rogers had cut a hole in the front door of Skewer's house through which he could now fire his gun. So when the bailiff, William Carpenter, approached the door, Rogers shot him and killed him. Carpenter's servant, um, Samuel Hatch, he was also shot in the groin. 
The following day, on the 20th of June, a soldier called George Wilson was shot and killed by Rogers, who again came to an upper window. Um, and a man called Henry Jeffries was also shot in the leg. So now we're talking two dead and two injured. The whole situation was deteriorating really fast and with so much chaos and Henry Rogers so secure inside the house, well, it seems that authorities just kind of gave up trying to get him out. It's, it's really not clear exactly what happened, but it seems like they just walked away and left him there. Reports say that Rogers was left alone at the farm for nine months and it wasn't until March 1735 that anyone came to arrest him. The sheriff, the under-sheriff, sorry, Tilly, refused to return, so Edward Bennett, a constable, was sent, along with the last man who was to die, another constable called Andrew Willis, alias Tubby. They arrived at Skewis on the 16th of March to, quote, take him in on account of the murders he had committed, end quote. But Rogers was ready for them, and unfortunately, he shot Willis dead as they approached the house. With three men now dead, Rogers must have realised that this situation couldn't go on much longer. So he snuck away from the farm. He uh, waited until the dead of night, and then he travelled on foot to Salisbury, apparently hoping to make it to London so that he could put his case to the king. A reward of £350 was offered for his arrest and his description was printed on pamphlets and on posters and widely distributed and he only made it as far as Salisbury where he was arrested in an inn. Henry Rogers and his servant John Street were both charged with the murder of William Carpenter, George Wilson and Andrew Willis and their trial was held at Launceston on the 1st of August 1735. Multiple witnesses were called who all claimed to have seen them shoot these men in cold blood, although most identified Henry as the shooter, not John Street. But both were found guilty, however, and both were sentenced to death. At the trial, it was claimed by John Street, uh, Henry Rogers' servant, and by a bystander, um, a Thomas Pendarvis, that during the original siege, that's the one in June, the soldiers had been the ones to fire first, and at least five rounds apiece. Pendarvis seemed to imply that only a handful of shots had actually come from the house, while the soldiers on the outside had fired multiple times, knowing that Rogers and his wife and his children were all inside. And this idea that Rogers was defending himself was also backed up by another account from Henry Rogers' son, who was actually interviewed in 1812 by the Cornish historian Davis Gilbert, who tracked him down in Penzance. And Rogers's youngest son, who was also called Henry, remembered the circumstances very differently from the official account. And Gilbert actually recorded it. He wrote down what um, the young Henry said. On the 30th of October, 1812, I called on Mr. Henry Rogers, formerly a saddler at Penzance, 
but then residing there in great poverty, being supported by a small allowance from a club and by half a crown a week given to him by the corporation, nominally for yielding up the possession of a house, but in truth to prevent him becoming a common pauper. Mr Henry Rogers was then 84 years of age and remembered the unfortunate transactions at Skewis perfectly well. He was between seven and eight years old at the time. He recollected going out with his father into the courtyard after there had been some firing. His father had a gun in his hand and inquired what they wanted. On this, his father was fired at and a snuff box and powder horn broken in his pocket by a, by a bull, whilst he, the boy, stood on the other side of his father. He recollected that whilst he himself was in bed, several balls came through the window of the room, afterwards striking against the wall and then rolling on the floor. One brother and a sister who were in the house went out to inquire what was wanted for, of their father and they were not permitted to return. On the last night, no one remained in the house but his father, himself and the servant maid. In the middle of the night, they all went out and got some distance from the house. In crossing a field, however, they met, were met by two soldiers who inquired their business, etc., the maid answered that they were looking for a cow when, uh, and they were permitted to proceed. The soldiers had their arms and his father had his gun. The maid and himself were left at a farmhouse in the neighbourhood and Mr Rogers proceeded on his way towards London. Mr Henry Rogers said that he was born in Crowan and he apprehended so were most of the children, that his father although bred a putera, had for many years occupied land in that parish. All these circumstances, after so long an interval, were related to me by the old man with tears in his eyes. It is curious to compare this account of the escape of one man, a woman and a child with the proclamation of the next day." End quote. So from that we can deduce that the young Henry seems to remember that the, the house, Skewer's house, was fired on first and that his father was being shot at and that his siblings were taken or at least not, not really allowed to return to the house um, as well as their sort of, you know, daring escape in the middle of the night. And he also mentioned that his father had occupied lands in the parish, which also raises the possibility that William's will had somehow removed those lands, the lands that he had been occupying from him. There is actually another first-hand account which was collected by Davies um, and this one is from an unnamed man who claimed to have visited Rogers when he was in prison in Salisbury in May 1735. And he gave a rather, how do I put it, a rather unflattering account which also raises the question of how many people actually died because this account is slightly different from others. So yeah, anyway, quote, Henry Rogers lived at a village called Skewis. He was so ignorant of reason as well as the power of the law that when a decree in chancery went against him, he resisted all remonstrances and fortified his house making loopholes for his muskets 
through which he shot two men of the posse who attended the under-sheriff. A little after, he shot one Hitchens, which I think there he means Hatch, as he passed uh, on a high road on his private business. He also fired through the window and killed one Toby, which I think he means Tubby here, um, and would not suffer his body to be taken away to be buried for some days. At length, the neighbouring justices of peace assisted the constables and procured an aid of some soldiers, one of whom he killed, and afterwards made his escape. But at Salisbury, on his way towards London, he was apprehended and brought down to Cornwall, when at the Assizes in August 1735, five bills of indictment were brought against him by the grand jury for the five murders aforesaid. To save the court time, he was only tried on three of them and found guilty of every one before the Lord Chief Justice Hardwick. He was lay in jail after his conviction, the under-sheriff coming in. He attempted to seize his sword with the resolution to kill him, swearing he should die easy if he succeeded in that design. He was attended by several clergymen, but they could make no impression on his brutal stupidity, and he died at the gallows without any remorse. End quote. Well, I think at this point as well, um, it's worth mentioning that there is actually an etching of Henry Rogers, which was supposedly a likeness of him that was taken during his time in, in prison. And um, you can actually see it in that book that I mentioned, um, uh, Cornish Characters and Strange Events. And it, it, the etching shows him in shackles in a cell with bars at the window. He's a very large man, very broad-shouldered, broad-backed, and he's shown wearing a curly wig, which obviously would have been the fashion of the time, and a frock coat with buttons down the front and very wide lapels that sort of spread out over his shoulders. And he's also made to look quite scruffy, really, in the etching. There's um, a, a rip has been drawn on one of the sleeves on, on his arm. And also his cuffs look really ragged as well. So it's really hard to know from, from these accounts, you know, what the circumstances exactly were and really what, what we should believe. I mean, what is clear or what does seem to be clear is that Henry Rogers shot five men and killed at least three of them. Now, whether this was in fear or self-defence, we, we can't know. But ultimately, he paid the price for that. He and John Street were hanged at Launson on the 6th of August, 1735. And the whole episode, the siege at Skewis, it caused a real stir in Cornwall and further afield because it was seen as a sort of an example of anarchic behaviour. You know, uh, people getting out of control, people taking the law into their own hands and it was deemed that this kind of thing should be dealt with swiftly and severely. But it's, it's really strange that, you know, it took 
the authorities, the Cornish authorities, nine months of, of dilly-dallying, which must have been a, a huge embarrassment to the officials that were involved. And there was talk of these officials being scared of public opinion, because I said to you that many of um, Henry Rogers' neighbours appeared to actually have been on his side. So yeah, it, it's hard to know, isn't it, looking back all those hundreds of years, exactly what happened. But a really sad postscript to all of this, or I, it's really sad in my opinion, is that Anne, William's wife, actually died just three years later. So if Henry had just waited, maybe he would have had a better claim on the land. Maybe he would have got his inheritance after all. Because, yeah, just three years later she was dead. So that's the story of Henry Rogers and the siege at Skewis. Let me know what you think, um, what your opinion is of how this all went down, how we ended up in this situation. Um, and if you really would like to look into it a bit more, you can go to Crescent Kernow yourself and you can actually look at that microfiche and you can read through the, the witness statements and all the documents that um, are compiled there. And yeah, get your own opinion. I've obviously had to, you know, paraphrase and shorten things down, you know, just to make it, you know, listenable on here. Um, We'd be here a very long time if I read through all the, the 20 odd documents that, that are there. But yeah, if you'd like to see some, uh, read some more about it, definitely make a visit to Crescent Kernow. It's an amazing resource. If you're at all interested in local history, you will just love it. Anyway, that's enough from me, I reckon. Thank you so much for listening. I really um, hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'm sorry that it's been so long since I recorded, um, but I will try and get better. I always seem to say that, don't I? But I promise I will try. And a really, really special thank you to my regular listeners for their ideas and their support and also to my patrons for helping me keep doing this. Your, your donations, your contributions, they really mean so much and really help to keep funding my research and help me produce this content. So honestly, thank you. Thank you so much. And guys, that's it from me. Um, I hope to speak to you very soon. Until then, have an awesome day. Take really good care of yourselves and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.